I see a few people I haven't met before, so welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We know it takes courage to come into a new community for the first time, so we really appreciate you being willing to join us. And we're serious about getting you connected. Um, I have one final announcement that's just really critical today because this is the last week to sign up for our spring equipping if you want to be in the classes that start next week. But if you go to the hub and you look at all the equipping opportunities, there's a bunch of them. And some of them are one time, some of them are classes, but some of them start next Sunday. So just check that out, sign up. And I just wanted to mention that what's so cool about our equipping is that most of the people who are leading our equipping are part of our church community, who are experts in these areas. So can we just preemptively thank those people for serving? We're so grateful. It's so cool. It's absolute, I mean, it's just so humbling and so awesome. So here's my problem with the community time question, even though I think it was my idea. And that is that I want to bring all the things to the desert island or desert island because I am finding that I just, there's a lot of things I feel like I can't live without. And so I hope I'm not the only one, but I, I, I've noticed, of course, you need food and water and the, the things that are on the basic and the hierarchy of needs. But it seems to me a little bit like as I get older, there's more things that I feel like I can't live without. I don't know if it's an age thing, but that's happening to me. So for instance, if I'm just being honest, a big one for me is iced coffee, okay? This is huge, this is huge. It doesn't matter what the temperature is outside, doesn't matter the weather. I need the iced coffee. If I don't have it by noon, game over. Like it's not gonna work. So if, you, if I'm ever up here without iced coffee, you will know right away. It will be a different experience. So. Iced coffee, I think there's like little things like I always have to have chapstick and lotion at like arm's reach. I don't know. That's just where I'm at. And then there's these sweatpants, like these certain pair of sweatpants that I got and I've been wearing them since COVID. And if I can't find them in my closet, I will rip everything out until I can find them because it's like at least I'm behaving like I can't live without them. I don't know. And then let's not even get started about my phone, which is basically another appendage. That's a lot of stuff that I feel like I can't live without. And so I don't know if you took that really seriously and you really thought about the three things you'd bring or if you're just goofing around. But I think that we can all resonate with the idea that there's things in our life that we feel like we can't live without. And I think it's interesting how many of those things that we feel like we can't live without, technically we could still live without, right? I mean, technically, we could still live without, whether it's the people in our lives that we feel like we can't live without, the items that we feel like we can't live without, there's actually very few things we need. But we experience our life this way. Maybe you resonate with this. And for me, it's connected to this underlying feeling that there is, maybe so many of us have this, I know I do. I have this underlying feeling like there's not quite enough. Like, I don't quite have enough. And, and, and it's, it's, I think it's because in a world where everything is always trying to sell us something, it feels like we quite don't have what we need. We don't quite have enough, right? There's this famous story, maybe some of you have heard it. Uh, John D. Rockefeller, the first billionaire in the United States, still considered the richest man to have ever lived on earth at his time. Uh, he was asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? And I guess just very calmly he replied, just a little bit more. The richest man to ever have lived. And it's not really an indictment on those who might be considered rich or wealthy, which is kind of a relative term if you think about it. Because no matter how much you have or don't have, most of us feel like we could use just a little bit or a lot bit more. When I was a kid, I would annoy my dad because I would go to the store with him and every aisle there was something that I was like, dad, I want this. Dad, can I have that? Can I have that? None of your kids do this, right? It's just, that was probably just me. 
And oh, I want this, I want this. And it was annoying him. And so he came up with an equally annoying phrase that he would say to me that has stuck with me till now. He would say, the more you want and the more you get, the more you think you have to have. And it's annoying because it's annoyingly true, isn't it? The more you want and then the more you get, the more you think you have to have. And I think that probably stopped me from asking for so many things as that would be my answer to, from him every time. But it stuck with me. And so we've been in the book of Mark together as a community. And as we're here in chapter 10, we're come to this part where Jesus is addressing this topic of, of material possessions. He's addressing this topic of what you need and what you don't need. And this topic shows us here in this passage and other places that the way of the kingdom of God is kind of upside down compared to many of the little kingdoms, I call them, that we live in. It, it's, it's so clear that Jesus has a different way of looking at this. In fact, Jesus talks about wealth and money a ton, actually, and possessions. He, would you believe that he talks about it more than he teaches on prayer throughout the Gospels? Whenever Jesus talks about wealth or possessions, he's often doing two things. One, he's speaking very practically about generosity and giving to those in need. He's sometimes using a, a parable to talk about the wisdom that you need to have with what, what, you're, what God gives you in stewarding things. But secondly, always look for the deeper spiritual meaning that he's bringing. Jesus is always both talking practically and there's a deeper spiritual meaning and pointing to deeper spiritual truths that if we would pay attention to those spiritual truths, it flips the script on our very souls if we're willing to take this core message to heart. And today's passage is a perfect example of that. So I want us to dig in today to this, por this portion of, ch of Mark chapter 10. And there's this encounter that Jesus has with a man that we find out pretty quickly is pretty wealthy. But then there's a subsequent conversation he has with his disciples. Those are the people who are committed to live the way of Jesus. They are living the way of the kingdom as they follow Jesus as a rabbi. And as we look at this passage today, on the surface... I don't know, whenever I get to it, I think this is one of the most challenging passages that you could ever reckon with. But here's what I hope. By the end of our time today, I hope you will see that it's also a profound invitation. A deep invitation of love from Jesus that can bring the deepest type of freedom in our lives that anything ever could. That's my hope for us today. So I'm going to read this passage first, again in Mark 10. Let me tell you about what just happened right before the passage that we're going to look at today. Jesus has been with these little children and he's blessing them. What's interesting about that is how undervalued children were in the first century. And Jesus' disciples thought, he doesn't have time for this. But then Jesus rebukes them for that. And he says this phrase in uh, verse 14. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now remember this as we go into our passage today. So we realize Jesus is about to continue on his journey to Jericho and then on to Jerusalem, but he is interrupted again. And so as we come to verse 17, what I want you to listen for as I read, you'll have it up here on the screen if you don't have a Bible, look for not only what Jesus says, but also for what Mark says he does and he feels. Okay, so look for not only what Jesus says, but what Mark says he does and he feels. So starting here in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. 
honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Confident guy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed or shocked at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, shocked, and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. There's so many times as you read through the Gospels or the stories about Jesus that you hear what he says. And sometimes you see what he does, but not often are you named an emotion that he's feeling like Mark does here. And it's very critical to pay attention to what Jesus' nonverbals are as well as what he's saying and what he's feeling if we want to deeply understand this passage for us today. So let me explain as we go through. This eager man, he must be eager because he's running up to Jesus. He bows down in front of him. And we find out pretty quickly this man is wealthy. This same version of the story in Matthew tells us that he was young. And then the version of this story in Luke says he was a ruler, which basically means he's probably a leader at, in some way in the Jewish society. So a young guy who comes from a wealthy family and who has already found himself in a position of authority at a young age seems to come to Jesus with urgency, with this question. And the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice the kind of financial language in there, right? Inherit. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't focus right away on his question. He does something kind of odd like Jesus usually does in my opinion. And he focuses on the man's greeting which was good teacher, good teacher, which the man likely said out of a sign of respect. And probably the etiquette of the day would have been for Jesus to re return the gesture and respond by saying, hello, good ruler. Good, you know, some sort of way of kind of like responding to him. But he doesn't do that, right? He doesn't respond with hello, good, whatever his title was. Instead, Jesus takes the moment to ask, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Jesus isn't making a point about himself as much as he's framing up this concept of what is considered good or good enough in God's eyes. And so this is what we see happening. Then Jesus names six of the Ten Commandments that come from the Law of Moses, which the young man would have been very familiar with. And as he responds, this young man with confidence, it says, declares to Jesus that he has kept them all his whole life. Now, I think the man may truly have believed that that was true, that he kept these big laws, right? But think about this for a moment. There is no child that perfectly honors their father and mother, right? We know that. And, and we also know that Jesus has begun to turn these concepts kind of on their head a little bit in the way that he talks about how these aren't really about what's happening on the outside, but about your heart, right? And so this man, he is basically saying, yeah, as far as outward compliance, as far as anyone can see, I have kept these matters, but what Jesus is saying is the true matter is the heart, the heart righteousness. Like Jesus, for instance, uh, when he's talking in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts to compare things like being angry with your sister and brother, 
with murder. Like he's like, look, it's about your heart. It's deep stuff. And so this guy here, he comes in and he declares this. And Jesus, instead of challenging this man's seeming perfection and having kept all the rules all his life, Jesus brings up the thing he knew the young man must have believed he couldn't live without. And he gives him these four things. He says, sell all your possessions. Go sell all your possessions. Give it all to the poor. Know that you'll have treasure in heaven or know that you'll have treasure in your eternal life. And then he says, come follow me. Now, this is important. Most scholars agree on something that I want to share right now. And that is that even though this man is said to have great wealth, it can lead us to think that this is about certain people and not others, right? Like, Right now, let's be honest, when you hear a story like this, you're like, well, I mean, I think I'm in the not rich category probably today, right? Like no other day are you wishing you were in the not rich category. But then you hear the story and you're like, this, this is probably not quite me yet, right? Okay, good and bad news is that no one is off the hook in the challenge that Jesus is giving. Okay, the scholars are like, it's not actually about the haves and the have-nots. You're going to see the deeper thing that Jesus is trying to say here. And if we can get our, get our heads out of the like, well, am I in that or not? Let's just let that go for a minute because nobody's off the hook. When Jesus gives these four statements, we not only see his words, do we? What do we see right away? Right after that, right before he says it in verse 21. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. He looked at him. He saw him. Like he saw this man who genuinely wanted to know, to know the answer to his question. And Jesus saw beyond the urgent question. That, and beyond the attempt at perfect rule following and beyond the wealth of a man who must have felt that something was missing or he wouldn't have been so urgent to run up to Jesus and to fall at his knees so dramatically. There's no way to know what gave this man his urgency. But when I think about it, it makes total sense to me. He feels like he's tried to be a good person. We hear that. We know that he has all of his material needs met and more but he's concerned about his eternal life, which means there's something inside of him, somewhere he must be wondering, is this it? There's got to be something more, a little bit more. And it gives him this urgency, I think. And Jesus sees him and sees his heart. And then it says he loves him. And so the response that Jesus gives of those four things, it's not because he wants to trick him. It's not because maybe he even wants to challenge him or rebuke him, but it's because he loves him. Sell all his possessions, give it to the poor, know that you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. When people who were first listening to these words of Mark, like I just read them today, this would have been shocking. Like this instruction would have just been shocking. We see that it was shocking to the disciples. And we, I think, maybe feel shocked. I feel shocked every time I read this story. I'm thinking, whoa. And it brings up a lot of questions, doesn't it? Brings up a lot of questions for me. The Jewish perspective in the first century was that wealth was a sign of divine blessing and divine favor. And we sometimes operate that way as well, don't we? And so if this is a blessing from God, why would he be asked to give it all up? The man goes away sad. He was told how he could have treasure in heaven, Jesus says, but to have that type of treasure, it would mean he has to lose security right now and the man can't do it, right? He can't do it. Another question comes up. There's many who follow Jesus and this is, I'm not even gonna answer all these questions totally. I'm just bringing up the questions. Okay, so another question comes up in my mind and that is that, you know, all these other people follow Jesus and most of them 
we don't see any evidence that they're asked to sell all their possessions and give them to the poor. I mean, people gave things up, but like the, the disciples, some of them still have homes and possessions. Or take the story of Zacchaeus, a tax collector. Jesus comes to him and he invites him to follow him. And when he invites him to follow him, he says he's going to give half of his wealth to the poor, not all of it. And Jesus says, this, is, this story is in Luke. Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. So this request of this specific man must not be one that should be taken legalistically for everybody, right? That's what I take from it. And there's a lot of questions that they had. And there's a lot of questions as the man left. And we see the disciples, they have a lot of questions. The man goes away sad, and then we see another description of Jesus' nonverbals in verse 23. What does it say? It says, Jesus looked around. Okay? So the guys go away sad. The guy goes away sad. Jesus, I, I picture this. I mean, I wasn't there. I picture this like a family reunion and somebody said something controversial. And everyone's like, oh. And you're wondering, like, what's about to go down, you know? And so Jesus sends this man away after giving this instruction to give away everything. And then the disciples must walk that guy. He walks away sad, and they turn back and look at Jesus. And Jesus is like, and then he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> and it says the disciples are shocked again. Whoa. They would not have expected him to say this. Then Jesus emphasizes his point. He doesn't even stop there. He emphasizes his point with this hyperbolic image of a camel, right? The largest animal that they would have had in that region that they would see regularly. And he says it's like a camel trying to fit it through the eye of a needle, right? So the largest animal you can think of trying to get through the smallest opening you can think of, all right? I mean, I think Jesus is trying to be a little funny, to be honest. And so he is saying this, and I have noticed something over the years as I've studied this passage. People have tried to tame this hyperbolic image. Because what people really want is to say, it's not impossible. It's just really challenging. And so there's examples of this. For instance, maybe some of you have heard this, but there's this idea that there was this gate near Jerusalem, and it was a smaller gate, and so people called it the eye of the needle. And if you had to bring your camel through the gate into the town, it meant you had to take some stuff off, and the, the camel might not have to kneel. Now, that would show, right, that it, well, it's not impossible. The problem is, is that there is no evidence that that gate ever existed. And then no one actually talked about that until the 11th century, and there's a certain guy who's seemed a little bit wealthy, who said, well, I think it's probably about this gate. <laughs> so I think, I think we have to just try to take Jesus seriously here. I think that when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God, he is saying, it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. And that's why his disciples can't help but utter the question, well then, who can be saved? Good question. And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. What's this? The camel thing. With man, this is impossible. But not with God. With God, all things are possible. You they, thank you, Steve. So you see this young man. He had a, a challenge that so many of us have. What we have, our wealth, the things we have, is just another thing that can cause us to think that we can trust in ourselves. And so this man was trusting in himself, first of all, in his righteous deeds. And then he's trusting in his personal resources, which could meet all his needs and more. And, and then Jesus makes this point, who is good but God? The rich young ruler wasn't good enough. 
The disciples weren't good enough. We aren't good enough. So then we have the same question as the disciples, right? So then who can be saved? And the answer is, at the same time, no one and anyone. No one can be saved by their own efforts, riches, wisdom, deeds, goodness, strength. But anyone can be saved if they trust in Jesus. That's the question. No one and anyone. This way of the kingdom is that anyone can inherit, there's that language again, anyone can inherit salvation and eternal life, but the invitation is to stop trying harder. Stop trying harder to achieve it. The rich young ruler had so much wealth that he couldn't imagine giving it up to follow Jesus. Even though Jesus promised this, you know, eternal treasure, that's kind of like the greatest return on your investment ever, but he's like, I can't take that deal. It didn't feel sure enough to him as the assurance he had from his own works and his own stuff. And here's what I think this reveals. What I think this reveals in this moment is that it wasn't so much that the young man owned so many possessions, but that those possessions were owning him. That's the turn, right? And Jesus knew this. That's why he loved him. He has compassion on this rich guy because he's like, I see you. And he sees somebody who's not free. He sees somebody who's held captive to the very things he clearly can't let go of. And these four things that Jesus says to this young man has a deeper spiritual truth, just like everything that Jesus says about money and possessions. There's always something deeper. The four things Jesus says to the man actually forms one big imperative. Give up your life and live holy for the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying to him. Give up your life and live holy for the kingdom. And for this specific man, he can't say yes to this because his heart's divided, right? The more you want and the more you get, the more you think you have to have. It's the have to have part that had this young man owned by his possessions, not the other way around. Give up your life and live holy for the kingdom. When we get to this part of Mark, this story, it's kind of shocking, right? But the thing is, is that it's just an application of what we saw Jesus say in chapter 8, where he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it, in Mark 8. So the deeper spiritual truth is that everything we have is God's. And that we, whether we have a lot or not, are just stewards of those things. And not only the items we have or the money we have, but the people that we love. We are just stewards of these relationships and of these things. That is the deeper spiritual truth. The kingdom and salvation through Jesus costs us everything, our very lives. And even if that man, let's just say for a minute that that man would have said, that's fine, I'll do it. I'll go sell everything I have and I give it to the poor. Let me tell you something. The next day, that guy would have more things he needed to surrender. Something else in his life he would need to surrender, just like we would. Because it wasn't about his wealth. It was about his heart, right? It was about his heart. Even if he would have done everything, that same question would have come up. Who can be saved? On one hand, no one, yet anyone. So here's, here's my interpretation of this passage, okay? And you can disagree with my interpretation, but here it is. I don't think the interpretation of this passage for us today is that all of us are supposed to sell everything and give it to the poor. That's not an amen moment, Steve. That's just, just okay, good. <laughs> However, I have known people to do this. 
I have known people to be like Zacchaeus and give half of their things away because they felt like God told them to. And people's lives have been changed because they followed Jesus and that. So here's the thing. I am not going to promise you that that's not something God's going to ask you or me. Okay? That's not something I can, it could happen. But I think the best interpretation of this passage is actually way deeper than one huge gesture of giving away all that you have. While that would be a big deal, the invitation and challenge for us today is to surrender everything to Jesus. Everything. Our things, our people, our very lives. And trust Jesus enough to believe him when he promises that in return we will get everything that we need and more in this life in some ways, but for sure when he returns and restores all things. Can we take that deal? It's clearly deeply challenging. I, I feel that it's deeply challenging to think of surrendering everything. It's so challenging, but there's also a profound invitation, and I don't want you to miss it. Just like with this man, Jesus looks at us. He sees us for who we are, and he loves us. And I think he says something to us, just like he said to this man, I love you. There's one thing that you lack. You are attached to the things that you think you own, but they actually own you. Do you see the invitation, the love Jesus has? You're putting your trust in people and relationships and good works, but it's impossible to achieve your way to being good enough. It's impossible to have enough. Theologian N.T. Wright has this quote. I just love it. He says, to earn salvation through deeds or wealth or even by being really good at serving people, to try to earn salvation that way is like climbing a ladder to try to reach the moon. Forget it. It's not going to happen. And Jesus says... Give it all up and trust me because with me, all things are possible. So the invitation is not to try harder. It's to surrender more. It's not to try harder. It's to surrender more. But you know what? We can't even get that right. Like we can't even surrender on our own. Like, I don't know about you. I can't even surrender on my own. And I think Jesus knows that we can't do it. Because if you look at verse 24, after he is talking to them about how the, the rich can't inherit the kingdom of God, he says to the disciples, these, these grown adults, he says, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And we know what Jesus said about kids a little bit earlier, right? They're the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. He says, those who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And so he calls these disciples children. And he looks at us as his kids and he says children. And counterintuitively, Jesus says it's hard for someone who's trying to get their wealth or their good deeds to be what gives them access to the kingdom. Instead, they must be like a child. That's counterintuitive to us now and it for sure would have been then. His invitation is not to try harder but to surrender more. And I think if we can get our head around it, it's such a freeing invitation, right? For Jesus to say, come to me and admit that you can't even surrender on your own. I will help you with that too. To let it go and to recognize that in this life, we will have and we will have not. But at the end of the day, do we trust Jesus? Can we surrender to him? Because all of us adults in here are like, the responsibility is a lot. And Jesus is like, cool, cool. Let me help you hold that for you. And so here we have this invitation by Jesus to let go and to surrender. And I think it is such a profound invitation of love that Jesus can bring deep freedom in our lives if we can accept in our mind and our heart that we don't have to just try harder. So that brings up a question that you should all be asking, which is, okay, how do we put into practice what we just learned today? That's a good question. Because if it's not try harder, I don't think it is. 
And so this is actually a perfect week to put this into practice. As Pastor Adobe said, we're heading into the season of Lent. Starts Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. Some of you have a lot of experience with celebrating Lent and observing Lent, and some of you it's brand new. But no matter where you're at with that, I just invite you to consider it this year, okay? And here's why. Uh, Let me explain what it is. So simply put, Lent is a season of prayer and fasting and generosity that leads up to Easter Sunday. And it starts this Wednesday, like I said. It's a time to focus on our trust in Jesus by making the choice to give up something and then also to, I say, take up something. So you give up something and then you take up something. Historically, many people have fasted or given up food or a certain type of food, uh, certain meals maybe. But it's not only about the fasting or the giving something up, but it's about the taking up. It's about replacing what you cut out with an intentional practice. So, for instance, someone might decide that that they're going to take a couple days a week and they're going to fast from lunch. But instead of just working through their lunch break or just doing something else, they're going to be intentional with that 20 or 30 minutes to take a prayer walk or to journal or to connect with God in some way. And then they're going to take that money that they would have given for lunch and spent at Aldi or Cub or Chipotle or whatever, and they are going to give that money to somebody else who needs it more. Do you see how it's both giving something up and taking something up? So this is the invitation to you. Now, food is not always the best thing for everybody, right, to fast from. For some people, like physically or even mentally, uh, mental health, it's just not the best thing. And the good news is there's lots of things you could consider that you could give up and you could take up. And so here's what I want us to know, and then I'll give you a couple instructions to think about. The purpose of this is to practice our dependence on Jesus. Jesus isn't going to love us more for observing Lent. Observing Lent in this intentional way helps us turn towards God like a child and say, I need you. That's the intentional practice. It helps us open our hands with our things, with our time, with our money, with our people. And in its place, we remove something temporarily and it guides our hearts to remember everything that we have is God's. We can't do anything to earn God's love, God's salvation, God's eternal life. So it's impossible, and I just want to go, it's impossible for us to enter the kingdom of God, even though it's in our midst. But the impossible is possible because of Jesus. I mean, he did everything necessary to conquer death, to come back to life and inaugurate the kingdom of God so we can join in. So if God tells you to sell everything, then I think you should say yes. Okay, that's just, you know, Mark, like that's my quote. If God tells you to sell everything, you should say yes. But I think that the deeper question Jesus is asking all of us is will we give up everything, our very lives, and give them back to him for the sake of the kingdom of God? So as we finish, I've got three ideas for you just to think about when it comes to Lent, whether it's new to you or not. Uh, if you go to the hub, millcitychurch.com slash hub, we've got some Lent resources. But you have from now until Wednesday to think about what you might want to observe for Lent. And let me th- encourage you to think about three things. First, about your time. What is something in your time that you might give up and then something you could take up? So let me give you an example. Social media you could give up for a period of the time and you could replace that or take up memorizing a psalm or something like that, right? Or think about volume. I think this is huge in our life. Is there something you could intentionally turn down and something you could intentionally turn the volume up on? So for instance, you could turn down the volume on those news shows or some sort of podcast and turn up the volume on listening to God. Or to, to music that's, that's worship music that helps you center on Jesus. And then finally, the traditional, the stuff or the food. What could you let go and what could you pick up? What's something that you could skip buying? 
or food that you won't eat and then you can replace something with that. So here's the examples for those. Maybe you're not eating desserts, but every time you just are longing and you desire a dessert, you turn to God and say, I want to desire your kingdom even more. Or maybe you say, okay, I'm not going to buy any, spend any money on clothes during Lent. And instead, I'm going to pick up the practice of giving to an organization that is helping those in need who maybe have much, more, much less than I do. So the invitation and the challenge for us today is to surrender. To surrender everything to Jesus. And to give it all up for the one who gave up everything for you. So we go into this time of worship. May that be our meditation. To give it all up. To let it go. To not try harder, but to surrender more to the one who gave up everything for us.